Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Another week gone by and another week close to Let's Talk Dubs. One crazy weekend taking place at the Orleans Hotel Casino here in Las Vegas. This is the most action-packed weekend that you could have in your Volkswagen in Las Vegas. Show up for the strip cruise Friday night. Organized strip cruise down the world-famous Las Vegas Boulevard. Followed by meet and greet at the hotel. Saturday morning kicks off a car show from 8 to 1. Where there'll be a few hundred of the nicest Volkswagens on the West Coast there on display. Take a little break. And in the early evening kicks off the world famous one crazy weekend poker run. That's right. Cruise around Las Vegas Valley with, with your chance to win, get your share of a few thousand dollars given out that evening. Come back to the hotel and we have a good time the rest of the night. If you guys are looking for the best time you're going to have in your Volkswagen in Las Vegas and want to party in the city that never sleeps, go to letstalkdubs.com, click on the showtime link and make sure you get the room reservation information and the code for the room discounts. You want to make sure that you get your room booked at least 30 days advance, October is super busy in Las Vegas, so make sure you don't miss getting your room reserved for the Let's Talk Dub One crazy weekend, and that's going to be happening October 7th and 8th at the Orleans Hotel and Casino, and that's brought to you by Finley Volkswagen. This podcast is brought to you by VW Trends Magazine, a magazine for the people, by the people. Back on the scene after a long hiatus, VW Trends Magazine is the magazine that's for the enthusiast. Not just Orange County VWs, but all over the globe, water-cooled and air-cooled. Anything that's cool is inside VW Trends Magazine, so go to VW www.trendsmagazine.com and subscribe today. This is for all you shifty cats out there. Go to Ross Wolf's page and check out their new VW shift coupler for your early Beetle or bus. It's a perfect performance replacement that won't come apart and fail. The coupler's machine from T6061 T6 aluminum has the strength of structural steel and fits your VW shift rod and nose cone. Fastened with stainless steel grub screws and lock nuts, it's a shame something this attractive is hidden under the tunnel. But listen guys, if you want to get your shift together, go to RossWolf.com and get some of the finest aftermarket automotive parts available for your VW. Built by enthusiasts, Ross Wall, purveyors of speed and style. Today's podcast is one that we've been in the works for for a while. We did our podcast with VW Kid a few episodes back and we talked about the origins of the cow style or what some people refer to as the German folks look. The origin of that style started in East LA in the mid 70s to the early 80s. One of the first clubs that was on the scene that was really putting that style out there was Bugs Buddies. Now Bugs Buddies was an early VW club out of the LA area and on today's podcast I've got William Noguera who was a sergeant at arms for Bugs Buddies VW Club in LA. We get and dig into some of the early history of that scene from one of the guys that was on the forefront of it. Now, William Noguera is currently serving a death sentence on death row right now. He was arrested in 1983 and convicted of murder. He's been on the rehabilitation path for over the past 40 years, doing seminars and lectures and trying to keep kids straight, as well as his service and contribution in the art world, also helping prisoners rehabilitate, get education, and do a lot of positive things. So he's really made an effort to do that, and we were uh, lucky enough to get him on the podcast, and we talk about the origins of the history, and we also eventually end up talking about what he's been doing since he's been in prison, kind of what's going on with his case right now. So it's a great podcast, a lot of history. And one of the cool things in here is there was a street race throwdown back in the early 80s against a really famous top fuel drag racer and William Noguera. And you're going to have to listen to find out what it's all about. But again, it's a great story. Let's Talk Dubs is bringing you the history from the people that lived it. So on today's episode, Bugs Buddies, Sergeant at Arms, William Noguera from Death Row on Let's Talk Dubs. Here's a Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. 
The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. Since we made a VW that's a little roomier in the inside, Volkswagen dealer. He'll show you where the motor is. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. William, you there? Hey, Bill. All I'm right. Here. Perfect. Well, so on today, so on today's show, I wanted to uh, welcome a guest. Previously, we were we had a podcast with VW Kid, and we started talking about some of that early Cal style look. And so on today's show. I've got William Noguera. He's an artist, an author, a podcaster, and also the co-host of Death Row Diaries. And he's currently sitting on death row in Santa Quentin, and he's he's been serving a sentence since 1983. But he's also one of the founding members of uh, Bugs Buddies out of uh, Los Angeles. And so welcome to the podcast, William. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here. We talked a little bit about the origins of that early Cal style look and, and on the podcast with kid, we talked about, you know, who the, who the guys that have been in it from the beginning. And he definitely directed me towards you and said, Hey, you got to get William on the podcast and talk about that. So the way we always start the podcast is what's your VW story and how did you get into Volkswagens? Hey, that's, that's a great story to tell. And yeah, you're right. VW kid and I have known each other for since, the early 80s, and my VW career started in the mid-70s, latter 70s, 1977, 1978, and uh, and I'm one of the original members of the Bugs Buddies, spelled with double G, double D, and we're out of La Puente, California, and we are the originators of the retro, retro cow look. There's a lot of talk, and this is where... DW Kid and I have gotten together and talked about this because there is a narrative out there that other people in the early 80s and late 80s came up with this look, which everybody refers to now as retro, retro look. And really, that's completely incorrect. Right. The originators of that look are the Bugs Buddies, specifically Adam Chacon and uh, Eddie Boy Chacon who are the two founding members of the club and who actually came up with the look because a lot of our members were members of the Lowrider Club, the Imperials. And right. those influences of completely original cars dumped to the ground on, you know, hubcaps and beauty rings, uh, all fully chromed, that look came from us because it came originally from Lowriders. Now, how did you guys make that transition? Because really there couldn't be, in today's day and age, VWs, because of our generation, 
in my opinion, are as American as Chevrolet, right? But back then in the late 70s, in the lowrider community, you were really kind of taking, taking a, going out in left field, grabbing a Volkswagen. What pushed you guys to go that direction? Well, the look. We loved the way Volkswagens look, specifically 66 and older. We didn't like the newer ones, you know, the 69, 70, 71. For us, it was always convertibles, rack tops. That right. was our thing. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that the Bucks Buddies were founded on the concept of Cowboy Bucks, but we didn't like what, and, we'll, and I'm going to be completely honest with you, so let's call it what it was. Mm-hmm. We used to call them white boy bugs. Right. Because they were, <laughs> they used to chrome these cars, they'd take all the chrome off of them, they'd dump them in the front, put center lines on them, put T-bars on them, and they looked fast, but to us, they were a little... They weren't long enough. They didn't. They took a lot of the originality and the the contour of the beautiful Volkswagen that we loved, and really took it away. So it was from that look that we started. We began to transition to living them all original with the full bumpers. I'm talking about the full, not the European bumper, but the yeah. full bumpers. Yeah, the and towel bars to the and ground. all that. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, all the original window chrome. And the more original, the more mid condition it was, that's where the concept began. And it, look, we were poor kids. We didn't have a lot of money. I, you know, we couldn't go out there and just buy the car or, and, and put alloys on it and build a huge motor. So everything we had to build ourselves. Looking at the original lowrider style, you know, it was always, you know, especially with like the bombs and stuff, it was all original OG accessories, fender skirts, like visors all that type of stuff, which then really back in the late 70s, late 70s, early 80s, people weren't really doing that with Volkswagens. It was really, they were really pushing for the cow look, which was like flashy colors, modern touches, power windows, Recaro seats, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And we were kind of anti that. Right. So we had the original interiors. Yeah, they were redone. They were, they were reupholstered and restored, but our cars were on the ground at first, and then little by little, like 1979, I threw alloys on my uh, on my 63. And, you know, it was a beautiful 63. It was on the ground. It was red, beautiful interior. It was in mint condition, but there was that lack of power. I had a 1200, the original motor in it. Right. And I started learning. I started learning how to build engines. I actually, I was one of the mechanics at... Mikey's Precision VW in La Puente, California, and that's where I learned how to build engines, and I was associated with... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Well, there they are, but... Right, right. <laughs> I, was, I was involved with Remco, Small Car Specialties, Paul, uh, Paul's Volkswagen, Dave Fultz Trans, all these guys, I grew up in the same area with them, so I knew who these guys were, so I went to them, and Mike Trelts saw the potential I had as a mechanic, as a guy who just knew Volkswagens and Porsches, mm-hmm. and he gave me a job. And so you go right into working in the v, working in the VW industry. Now, how old are you at this time? Well, I'm like 15 years old. So 15 years old, you're out there wrenching on Volkswagens and then start working for some of the shops and getting trying to get wherever you can to kind of level up on, on your VW knowledge and, and get kind of immersed in the scene. Absolutely. For me, the history of Volkswagen was extremely important. It always has been. 
So I learned everything, you know, who Federine Porsche was, his relationship to Porsche and to Volkswagen, how the car came in, what were the years of split window, the years of oval window. I, I learned everything I could about the history of the cars. And my Trelch, who was my boss, he kind of saw that in me. And it, for me, it was a kind of an opportune time. My father was a machinist. So he had lace, he had mills, he had horizontal mills. So I began porting, polishing my own heads. I began building motors. And by the age of 16, I had a car I drove to school every day, a daily driver that pulled high 12s in a quarter mile. Really? That's uh, yeah. That's pretty impressive of running high 12s when you're in high school, you know, to have a car turnkey like that. Now, who were some of the guys um, in in the in the VW scene that were into your style and then that, that were some of the forerunners in this particular segment of it. Now you had, you had, uh, well, at first, the Chacon brothers. I'm sorry, go ahead. You had the Chacon brothers and then, Absolutely. then who else was out there with you? Well, other car members, Larry Hernandez, Bobby Hernandez, uh-huh. both other two brothers. There was, uh, Charlie Ramirez, Fred Espinosa, who was one of the Imperials joined the club. Well, he was brought in. I mean, all of us, Eddie Boy and Adam really handpicked all of us. Mm-hmm. We had a certain look. All of us looked a certain way. We're all Hispanic. The cars had to be in mint condition. Juan Gonzalez is another one. We had uh, the, um, Dennis Aguilar. Uh, we had a number of guys that were coming into the scene that were really bringing it to the next. Each one brought something special. For me, it was the mechanics. I, you know, I, I built trannies, I, I built engines, and look, the, the truth of the matter is, in high school, the only things that would run me would be other motorcycles, motorcycles or V8s. Yeah. Other Volkswagens wouldn't run me. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one yeah. of those, back in the days when you used to have a fast Volkswagen, even me in the, in the, in the mid, mid-90s, I'm out there in my little 19, 1904 running these five-liter Mustangs, and shocking these guys, which you couldn't do in California because by that time it was all over. Everybody knew on the Volkswagens that they were too fast to mess with, but it was always a real big surprise, you know, back in the early days, especially at the street races, you know, because you're looking at these Volkswagens thinking they should be slow. And it, it was always really something of a surprise, especially back in the early days when you guys could crank a lot of power out of these things. I mean, that's a, that's a huge transition story for a lot of guys that how they ended up going from the V8 world into the VW world because they got it handed to them by a fast street Volkswagen and they wanted to be part of the, part of the uh, counterculture, if you will, you know? Well, well, actually, it's actually interesting you say that because although I love Volkswagens from the very beginning I saw, I fell in love with them. My first car was a 1970 SS Nova that had a 427 in it. Really? And I thought I was the fastest thing on wheels. Well... I had my ass handed to me by a little white kid at Whittier Boulevard, four lanes in Whittier Boulevard, where everyone went on Friday nights to, to cruise, and I'm parked there thinking, look, I'm the man, and some kid with long blonde hair says, hey, you want to run? And I look at him, and I say, wait, you got a V8 in that thing? He says, no, it's a four-banger. So I asked him to pop his, pop his deck lid, and he pops it, and I don't understand what I'm looking at. And what I'm looking at is a turbocharge, and I don't know what it is. I'm right. saying, what the hell is this? And he tells me, let's run. 100 bucks a gear. I got five years. And I said, okay. Well, but I know 
This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. That this guy would go on to beat me. And when he did, that weekend I sold that car. <laughs> and I immediately jumped into Volkswagens. Nice. Because this kid's car was primered, it had center lines on it, and it looked like nothing that could run. It probably took, I thought it'd do 18s in a quarter mile. Wow. This thing was a beast. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's 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 a story that's so familiar to so many of these guys. And then it's funny that you go, you start off in like the 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 kind of uh, the muscle car world. You know what I mean with one of your with one of your cars, and then bring it back to the VWs, and then merge the two together after a while with the performance kind of performance street car. Now you talked about something earlier. I wanted to touch on with the Porsche alloys. Now you said you're running the first set of Porsche alloys on on a bug in 1979. Now, what, who did you see running them, and what made you run a set of those, and how would you get them on the car and all that fun stuff? Well, yeah, that, that's interesting story because, of course, the drums are different. Yeah. You know, on an old bug, it's five. It's a totally different pattern. There was a guy named Rick, and Rick ran a place called Rick's VW on Valley Boulevard in La Puente. And his car was typical white boy. It was <laughs> baby blue. All the chrome was off. It had T-bars on it but he had these unpolished alloys. And they didn't look very well. I didn't like the way they looked, but I saw potential in it, and I ended up getting a pair of alloys, um, sixes in the back, and I had, I believe, four and a half up front. Mm -hmm. And I took them down to a place, and I had them polished. And I, you know what? It looked good, but I didn't like the look, so I had someone triple uh, chrome for me. Oh, wow. And that was a whole new look. Because no one had ever done that before that I had ever seen. And I had been at Buggin'. I, I went to Buggin'. I saw some of the cars. Some guys had five-spoke empties, eight-spoke empties, had center lines. But I didn't see many alloys. But triple chroming them was a whole different ball game. And then what I did with the detail, the caps, I ended up drilling holes in them and putting the Wolfberg emblem in them. Oh, wow. That's uh, I mean, that's the, yeah. it, it's interesting because it's a look that's was really, really popular. And one of the things, you know, for my generation, I'm 50 and, and me being into it and getting the car scene in the late 80s, early 90s. Over time, it became like the 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 whole thing with like a German, the German folks look was like chromed wheels. Everybody else is polishing their wheels. They're triple chrome in their wheels. But that's kind of the origins of where all that came from. Absolutely. And look, I've been in prison for nearly 40 years. And I was doing this way before these other guys even thought of the idea. And actually, as Kit said, my cars were all over the L.A. scene. Everybody saw my cars on Sunday nights at, at the Whittier Boulevard where the Hispanics cruised, which was the other side by Garfield. Mm -hmm. And I would go to the Elysian Park, a Royal Seckle Park. So everybody saw my cars in the party scene. I, I got a couple of pictures from your uh, nephew that helps you out on your Instagram page and whatnot. And what's interesting is I, I'm looking at one of the photographs of you with your, uh, looks like you got a pit bull in your, uh, next to your convertible. And yes. what's interesting is I remember, you know, back in the early night, like I think it was, I think it was 91. I was, uh, I was kind of in my, in my low rider phase a little bit. So I had a 76 cutlass and I went down to South central Los Angeles. I live, I grew up in Vegas and I'd gotten some McLean's on my car 
and I had a buddy live down oh, there, nice. down there near South Central. So I said, man, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go down, show off my wheels. We're going to go try to cruise, cruise Cranshaw and all those areas. You know what I mean? And, and I remember being down there and I saw a bug and I was just blown away because it was a smoke gray convertible that he was, you know, he had his little running lights running, deep dish, poor shallows in the back, skinny ones up front. And it just had the same look like your car does, but it was like a smoke gray color. But that that full on look just reminds me of that L.A. look of early lowrider influence, but just a specific look that I guess we're terming the kind of the cow style look, right? Is that is that what we're officially calling it, or what? What are we what are we branding the style? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. What we used to we used to just say, "Bugs buddies down." which it, it always told one of us that we were actually, you know, the guys who came up with it. It was, it was a, a known fact where that stuff came from. They call it Cal Retro, Cal Retro. Right. We just call it, you know, original and slammed. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, there was no real name for it. It was our style. And every car club in Los Angeles, the Lightning folks, all the, the, new, the older guys, DKZ, all those guys, they knew who we were. Because when they would see us, get this, you'll love this, Bill. They used to call, because the Bugs Buddies, BB, they call it Beaner Bugs. <laughs> That's what they used to call us, Beaner Bugs. So you, you get that, where when I started hearing, look, I'm in a prison cell in my tower in East Block, and I'm listening to people tell me, hey, Bill, these guys are saying they came up with that look. It's like they put the bat signal up, and I'm coming home. I'm telling people that's not the way it was. Right. And not only that. The guys from, look, you'll love this one. Yeah. Corey McLennathan. Yeah. Corey Mack, who raced at Energy. You know, he had a Volkswagen 1957 bug that I raced them in 1981 when we were in high school together. He really? went to Sonora High School. Yeah, I raced him. Wow. You want to ask him who won that race? Yeah, who won? <laughs> I won that race. I pulled, I pulled him by six cars, okay? Because. Prior to Corey Mack becoming the Corey Mack of the NHRA, he had Daddy to pay for all his cars. Right. Okay, and all his money. Because, remember, I hung around with the guys from Remco, the yeah. guys from Small Car Specialties, and Dave, uh, uh, Mike Trout. So I knew who was building what. It was a very small circuit back then. Sure. So I knew what everybody was running. When they said, I'm running a 2180 with 48s, Great, but what's inside of that thing? What kind of cam are you running? Is it an FK9, FKD7? What are you doing? What are your heads look like? Who ported it? Who polished them? Right. So I knew all the, in, the internal workings of these of these particular guys. So I used to tweak my car. Actually, that's 56. I think you got a picture of it, too. Yeah. I ran a 1756 stroker in it most days. But on Friday nights, before I went to the boulevard, I dropped my 2180 in that thing. And I went hunting. <laughs> now, back in those days, how would they set up the races and where would they go to race? Four lanes. And where's that? That's off Whittier Boulevard by the industrial center. There's a section about a quarter mile. We call it four lanes because there's four different lanes. And they would just get a person with a Christmas tree out there, meaning a light, Mm-hmm. And when they hit those lights, you jumped on it. Really? And usually, when I jumped on it, in first and second gear, my my front tires came off the ground. Wow. 
and then you guys would race. And what would what would the typical setup be like? Uh, like you got everybody would kind of congregate at a burger joint up until about eight o'clock, and then people would start bleeding off, going over to the four lanes, or would dudes be cruising and call each other out, then head over there, or how 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 was the setup going down? Yeah, you would cruise with your boulevard like you normally would, and you know, you, if there's one bug coming across or a V, and they rev their motor, you rev back, and and you say, "What's up? You know, what do you what do you want to do?" And hey, well, let's run. Okay, how many how many bucks a gear? Is it a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks a gear? I ran five gears, so I always tell them, "Look, it's five gears, man." So let's roll, and we'd go over there. We'd go to a different place to race, and we would run it. And it was somebody held the money for you. It's a lot like the the the, the the olden days of, of uh, the Hollywood Nights and stuff, where these guys raced, and this is in the '80s. It still was like that in the early '80s. Yeah. Of course, things changed, and they started. You know, they wouldn't let you cruise. They were pulling people over. But this was a huge scene back then. All the kids went to Whittier Boulevard on Friday and Saturday nights. We hang out at Wendy's or at um, at Angelo's. It, it depending in, in L.A. It was Tommy Burgers yeah. or Arby's. So it's it's a different scene, and I used to play in both scenes, which was White Boy Whittier Boulevard Friday nights and Saturdays, and then in the Hispanic area, which was the um, Whittier Boulevard by by Garfield in East L.A. So it's the same Whittier Boulevard people would cruise on two different sides of town, and one side would be like, one side would be all the Latinos, the other side would be all the white boys. Yeah, and then you can see why our cars look like Roadrunners because all the big car clubs together, group, Imperials, Majestic, all of them are there, and they're they're usually where our older brothers or cousins, and they had a huge influence in the way we looked at our cars. And but I wanted both worlds. I wanted to have my car. I wanted fast. I wanted I wanted to be technically sound. I didn't want people to say, "Wow, that car is clean, but it's got no engine. It's it's, it's a it's a it's a Tweety Bird engine." Right. Or a sewing machine. Now, what were some of the other VW clubs that were around that were like in that LA area besides Bugs Buddies? And then let let's 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 talk about the other like Hispanic influenced VW clubs that were around back then. Was it just Bugs Buddies or what or who else was out there? Well, in the LA of course, in, in the other area, the other Woodyard Blur, which I call White Boy Woodyard, there was a lot of clubs. DKV there was the Tamper uh, Wagons. There was a lot of different clubs. There were clubs that went to the Buggin' and showed. So there's, there's a different scene. In the L.A. area, of course, the beginning, the originators, the notorious were the Bugs Buddies. And from there, a lot of different Hispanic clubs began to form in the early 80s. The Lightning Volts were one of them. There was, um, I'm trying to think of all the different clubs I think Volts folks got going in the 80s as well. There are a number of clubs that formed. And let me just say this. I've seen photographs, because I can't see them in person. I've seen photographs of the Volts wolves and their, and their bugs. And they're immaculate. They're beautiful cars. And, and by no way, shape, or form, I mean, talking about us being the originators, am I somehow uh, shaming them or putting them down? Those guys do it right. Yeah. Their cars are beautiful. They are... They are, right now, the kings of what they do, and I have only respect to talk about those guys. No, 100%. But we have to be straight about where it came from, so there's a lot of clubs in L.A., but they weren't very big. Remember, we're talking about people don't have a, we didn't have a lot of money, where most of us were kids, 15, 16, 17 years old, 
we didn't have the kind of money to pour into the cars that we do now or, or that we would if we were 50, 60 years old. Now, you brought up that Bugs Buddies was kind of notorious. What were they notorious for, and what kind of reputation did Bugs Buddies have back in the day? Well, I know you're smiling because <laughs> you know this question was going to come. So, yeah, look, I, I think being candid is the best thing. So let me, let me lay this down for you. The Bugs Buddies were all car thieves. Right. There is no way on this. I'm not bragging about it. I, I look at it now as a man who's nearly 60 years of age, and I think, Jesus, what was I thinking back then? Right. But this is the truth of the matter. Every car in that car club was a changeover. Really? And I don't know if you know what the word changeover means. Oh, yeah. We, we started calling it, we called it cambio. Yeah. So if you want, I'll explain to you what a cambio means. Yeah, please, please explain. Okay. So, of course, we didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't have the best influences in our lives. Right. But there is a bit of genius to what Eddie Boy and Adam came up with. You go out and buy a pan. You buy a wrecked Volkswagen. The pan is straight. And what do you get with that? You get a VIN number. You get a pan that's clean. The, the, the shell doesn't matter. And we got that from dune buggies. Because back then, dune buggies were a big thing. You get a Volkswagen pan, you stick a fiberglass uh, shell on it, and it's, it's a legal car. They did the same thing with Volkswagens. Except when they bought the pan that was clean, they would restore the pan, they would clean it up, paint it, get it all ready. And then they'd go out and steal a completely original mint condition bug of whatever year you wanted. And you bolted it onto your pan. And from there, you built it. All those engines that we had, the alloys, everything we had, were gotten by nefarious means. <laughs> and, and I think that's part of, a, you know, being a guy that grew up, you know, in a low social economic area, a lot of times your parents aren't around and you're raised by the neighborhood. And like you said, there's not a lot of good influence and it's almost like, and not justifying it, but it's, it's, it's almost part of the culture of where you grow up and the influence of the people you're around, right? Cause not everybody in that, in that culture does it, but there's a segment of people that listen, if you're a car guy and you're hot for car guy stuff and you can't get, you can't afford to get the nice stuff you want, you're going to get it one way or another. And you know, there's, there's, the truth of the history of that, which is my appreciation of getting the truth of it. And then, you know, like a lot of us, we look at our, we look at our past, we get to a point in life where things happen with people and we decide to make a change and start doing things, you know, more, more legitimately. But yeah, there's, there's a, there, there's definitely some of that buried in the original culture. And so when you guys would go to car, so obviously when you guys would show up to a car meet, people get a little uneasy or what, what was the, what, what was the vibe then? Well, that was the interesting part about it. Now as a person who lectures and, and is an author and I do a podcast, and I'm, and I'm listening to and thinking about what people thought of us. You had two different narratives. You had the kids in that party scene, which was that L.A. disco. Uh, and, of course, they call that retro disco, too. It was, <laughs> right. it was interesting, but we would pull up, and we were like celebrities. We were rock stars. Um, one of the DJs, Black Tie, was Victor Aleman. He was a Bugs Buddy member, and he was the, one of the biggest DJs in Los Angeles. So we would show up at those clubs, 
We were royalty. There were 17 of us. Imagine 17 convertibles, rack tops, oval rags, split windows, on the ground, alloys, big motors, polished everything, show-conditioned cars, and we're all between the age of 15 and 19 years of age. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. We were like rock stars. Yeah. So, of course, there's the other side of this thing. So I had to take responsibility when I would go to places where Mike Trelch, who was a respectable businessman, and I would show up, and he'd say, this is my whiz kid. Some of the older guys would say, yeah, well, Mike, that guy's a thief. And, and, and there's a different type of, of feel there because it's an uneasy feeling because you know they're thinking maybe this guy stole one of my cars or something or my friend's cars or something. And there, there were confrontations along the way. But as being a kid, you don't think of it like you would as an adult. You kind of think, huh, everybody knows who I am. I'm notorious. Good for me. Well, it's, it's not that simple, is it? No, it never is. And I think being so, young, yeah, a- you know, be, being young definitely, you know, there's that part of growing up, you know, where sooner or later you start to wise up and you figure out you got to get your act together, you know? Absolutely. Unfortunately for me, it happened after being put in prison as I am now. But you, yeah, you have to understand that this is not a me, this is not me bragging about it. This is me coming in terms of who I was as a kid. But the more important thing is the culture and how this look came about. Yeah. It, it, it's not always great. The history of any movement is not always great. But I think it's important for people to understand and your audience to understand where this look really came from, rather than what looks good as a Cinderella story. Sure. No, I, 100%. And that's one of the reasons I was so intrigued to do the podcast was to track down the origins of the history because, you know, you've got Ruben who's in German folks and he, he when I first talked to him about trying to get him on there, he said he started originally being, he was one of the members of Bugs Buddies. Exactly. At this time, you're working, now the guy you work with, Mike, his name's Mike, last name is Trail. Mike Trilch, he actually won Buggin in 1980. His car, Kashmir, won Buggin. Oh, really? He was my boss. He used to own Mikey's Precision VW on okay. La Puente Avenue and and, um, and Temple. It was the corner. Uh, it's an old gasoline station, and that's where we built our engines. That's where, we built, that's where I built my 2180. Um, that's where we built our cars. Yeah, and... So meeting him and starting to work into that that world of building engines and whatnot, I mean, that's got to be – so at that point in the club, do you become the guy that everybody takes their car to get the motor worked on and do all the engine work and all that? Well, sort of. All the guys in the club knew Volkswagens inside and out. What a lot of the guys didn't understand was the inner workings of the engine. Like they could pull the engine, pull the carbs out, you know, send everything – but when I came in the scene, I, I began to take lessons from basically Mike Trelcher took after what he did. I discovered Weber's 4080 IDAs were my thing, you know, velocity stacks. Um, so when I brought that to the club, a lot of the guys would start mimicking it. And that's how really that look began to came. And then I changed things. There was, of course, a lot of guys got the doom buggy shrouds. I liked the 36 horse shroud and I'd pa- I, I would fill in the holes and paint them correctly, really do up the engines with black chrome and, and braided lines. So I took things to a whole different level. And I, I like, for example, cars run hot. They're, they're air-cooled. 
So I ran two um, oil coolers underneath my transmission. I ran double uh, uh, an oil sump. I ran uh, filters, things that only doom buggies did. I was already doing. I used the fans of a refrigerator to keep my engine cool instead of what you can just buy now. So there's a lot of innovation where we came up, and Mike Trelch really brought me, I guess, to speed on some of the things that they were thinking, and I brought my own creativity into it, and I came up with that look. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, something that's had an impact on the scene, and it's, def, it's, it's a whole segment that's out there, and kind of getting to the origins of it is, is super, super valuable to me. Now, back in those days, so you said you had, you guys had about 19 members at that time. Now, how, how long is this until you get, you, you get in trouble and end up, uh, and going, you were incarcerated in 1983? Yeah, December 20th, 1983, I was arrested. And the car club had been around since the, well, a little bit after 1976, 1977, the car club was a concept in 1975, 76, 77. We began getting members. And just so, I'll, and I'll do it right now. I'll name the, member, the members. And these are the original. Now, a lot of guys came after I was gone, mm-hmm. but they weren't original members. A lot of guys associate themselves by saying, oh, yeah, I was a Bugs buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a Bugs buddy, you're a Bugs buddy for life. You're not somebody else, right? Right. So right. let me give you the rundown of all the members. There were 17 of us. Those are the original members. And anybody that's not on this list is not a Bugs Buddy. So here it is. Eddie Boyd Chacon, founder. Adam Chacon, co-founder. Louis Parra, Mike the Beetle, Conrad Apadoka, Guy, Fred Espinoza, Larry Hernandez, Bobby Hernandez, of course, Bill Noguera, I was the 10th member, Tony Avila, Juan Gonzalez, Kevin Ball, Victor Aleman, Charlie Ramirez, Sal Cervantes, Dennis Aguilar. Those are the 17 members of the Bugs Buddies. Wow, that's a, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive that you're able to recall all that. You know what I mean? That you, you know, but I mean, if we think about it, that's the last little bit of your life before you take a turn and, and you end up going off the grid, per se. You know, so it's kind of the, the, uh, let's say the last part of your freedom that you're able to, to really think about. And that's, it's almost like that's where your life goes on pause on phase one, you know? So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I remember everybody cause I was one of the members and I was there with them. Now, of course, even VWQ, a number of the guys, um, who talks and look, Bill, after you left, things kind of fell apart. Yeah. I don't think it's because of me, but I, I mean, I was kind of one of the most well-known members me along with Larry Hernandez and Adam because we were always in the club scene, always in the cars. We had a new car every every year. We all came out with new cars. And um, it just, it kind of, things changed. Now, there were people, some of us went off and had other crews, mm-hmm. like myself. I went into Huntington Park and uh, Southgate, and that's where the VW kid comes in. He's one of, he's like a second generation bugs because he was with me. And there was uh, uh, Rene, one of his friends, he brought in as well. He became close to me. So there was a, uh, a, a number of guys 
that I brought in that weren't original members. However, they were with me, so they're part of my crew. Right. Well, that's, I mean, one of the questions that I have is when when you guys are putting this club together, obviously you guys are still involved in the whole lowrider scene and culture. How are you guys treated by the traditional lowrider guys? Because you guys are really kind of like the younger generation of those guys, right? Yeah, but a lot of those guys, like, look, I'm a little bit different. I'm not Mexican. Uh-huh. I'm Hispanic, but I'm Colombian. Right. I was the only Colombian car member, but I'm from <laughs> La Puente, California, and I went to school with these guys. So, and we, you know, we're kids together. We played together. So I kind of fit right in. And their older brothers, like, for example, Fred Espinoza and Juan Gonzalez, they were members of the, the famous Imperials. I mean, these guys were in the, the movie Boulevard Night. So when they see us coming and you get those guys to leave that car club and join ours, that's a pretty big boost for us. They're saying, hey, you're doing it right. We love what you're doing, and we like it. Yeah. No, that's uh, – so you guys were – so ultimately they were giving you guys respect of, you know, you guys doing your thing, doing it different, but doing your thing and doing it right. Yeah, because, it was, like I said, it's a lowrider culture, uh, but it's different because it is under the, the umbrella of Cal Look. Mm-hmm. Cal, California – look, and to us, we believed – you know, the American dream or the Mexican-American dream or whatever dream that you have, the, the California Volkswagen, the cow look, for us, had to be a ragtop or a convertible. Right. That was our thing. So what best, better way to express that than to have a beautiful 65 or older convertible slammed to the ground? I mean, you saw the picture of the black one that I had. Yeah, it looks Black good. With, a white, uh, with a white top. Now, that thing, I kind of twisted it a little bit. That thing, of course, I didn't like to put 2180s in those cars because you bend the frame and, of course, your doors don't close. Right. So that one had a nice two-liter in it. It had 48s, but I had Recaro seats in it. You can probably see the top of the seats in the picture. It's all original chrome. Everything is clean. But I, I began to put Recaros in them. I, I kind of like to look. Anything that you can go back to original later on, that's fine. But the body has to be original. That was a beautiful car. I mean, I, I remember that car fondly. But, yeah, things began to change a little bit. We began to evolve a little bit more. And as I said, the, the Volks folks now have taken it to a different level. And yeah. their cars are beautiful. Yeah, no, for sure. German folks, they've got a lot of, uh, they've got, I mean, they, they well, they've got, they just celebrated 40 years is what they've got a banner out saying and that they've been around for, for a minute, but uh, you know, they, they've definitely, they've definitely been a staple in the scene for a long time and have really um, solidified that, that culture and making, I mean, I think they were at the the classic and they had probably 40 cars in their lineup and every one of them unbelievably clean, you know, and that's, and I think that's one of the, one of really the, the cool things about the car culture, right? It's, it's one of those things where it's like the car is the great equalizer. We're all on the same plane, but it's like who can who can have the cleanest one and, and the best looking, you know, the most dialed in cleanest ride. And those guys have really built cars to such levels where it's like the look makes a statement in and of itself. And if someone tells you, hey, that's a car that belongs to German folks, you have an idea of the level of quality of those cars, you know. And yeah, absolutely. And the, the German folks, those cars are just 
incredible. You know, I, I they send me photographs of them. I take a look at them and I say, wow, these these guys are doing it right. You know, uh, you can't say anything but have appreciation for what they do. Oh, they are professionals. They their cars are immaculate. And it's very interesting because when Robert and I got back together and started really talking about what we wanted to do, and, you know, we talked about you. We said, look, let's talk to Bill uh, T. Um, yes. Let's talk Dove. Let's, let's go on. Let's talk about what we want to do. One of the things we want to do is we're looking for directors and producers of film because we want to tell the story of the original members and the original Bugs Buddy Club, and not so much that, but the look, the culture, the, yeah. what it became now from it went from us and now all the way to the German folks. Uh, where you get the evolution of the look. I think that is a story that needs to be told. And um, I'm hoping that someone's listening that has those type of connections that will bring this into the visual arts where we, people can appreciate what everybody went through. No, I agree 100% because there's, there's so much of that, so much of that culture that's bled off into other aspects and other parts and pieces and evolutions of the VW scene that it's, it's a real critical part of the history where everything starts to go a certain direction. You know, so I, I definitely think, and one of the cool things about it, especially, and may, it may just be our, you know, us being in the 50 and over club, we start to get nostalgic, but it's really something where it was a different time, you know, especially, you know, you, you've got a unique sample of life because you, you're in the dichotomy of like being in the prison system, but getting to see the world through a television of how the world has evolved into this insane insane aspect of like you know back in the day people say oh uh, bugs bunny bugs buddies or beaner bugs and you know what i mean like and it was no big deal and now it because you know we've got this completely different world now where it's like people have no threshold or tolerance for a little bit of ribbon or joking or just being able to be a little more i don't know if it's more relaxed or stop taking themselves so seriously well i yeah i couldn't agree with you I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's actually kind of funny that you say that because one of the other names, and I'll tell you a very quick story if you want to. Yeah. Uh, we were once we were going to we were going to a club in Hollywood called Geno's. It's a mm-hmm. disco club, and all 17 of us were together, and we're going down the freeway. And as the sergeant of arms of the club, because I had the fastest car, I'd always cruise to the front, cruise to the back, kind of like watching over my flock, kind of thing. Right. So. <laughs> It was funny because the guys from DKV, I don't know what they were doing on the freeway at the time, but they'd pull up next to us. And, of course, their guy named Sal pulls out in his 57. It's a beautiful blue with flames 57. And he's hopping on it, and I pull out, and, you know, we decide to stop and talk, and, you know, we're going to race. So he and I are going to finally go at it. He thinks he's got the car that's going to beat Bill's 57 oval rack. <laughs> right. And I'm like, let's do this. And I'm running, look, I'm running fully polished alloys, but I have street slicks on, so I don't take any chances when I go out. Right. So I go there, and, you know, we end up racing, and he had a fast car. I mean, this thing was beautiful. And I ended up pulling him by the... You there? Did I lose you? I'm probably a better driver than you are. And he laughed, and he tells me this, and this stuck. He said, man, that bachanga bug, and it stuck. He used to call my cars bachanga bugs. Instead of beaner bug, 
because he you have 60 seconds remaining because he was Hispanic too he'd call my car a pachanga bug yeah what's 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 pachanga mean for those that don't know what pachanga means well it's kind of like a beaner type of thing but because the music we're playing the disco retro music from the 70s they thought well it's kind of a pachanga it's kind of like a, a music type of thing it, it just stuck and right. everything would tell me man because because Bill and his pachanga bug right so yeah it's about <laughs> talking about not taking things so seriously we shouldn't take things so seriously it's just it's a great scene people should appreciate it for what it is yeah no I definitely think there's a there's a lot there's a lot to be documented that happened back in the day and it's all part of the history where we're at in the VW scene today is based off of what's happened in the past and the evolution of the hobby you know so I think that's that's pretty important to recognize and I definitely think there's I definitely there's there's material there to to document that well, you, back, all right cool so as I was saying, I think there's definitely uh, a lot of a lot of history that that's worth documenting back then, as far as the evolution of these things. Because with the VW scene being so vast, everything from off-road racers that were starting to race in the '60s to the to the street bugs to the cow guy to you know to the white boy bugs to everything, there's all those parts of the scene that are all growing at different paces all throughout the country really i mean a lot of it happening in southern california but still happening through other parts of the nation and a lot of that has evolved into really the the uniqueness of the hobby today you know you go to you go to the vw classic one of these huge car shows and and you're going to see volkswagens of every type style and flavor you know and and the mashups of a couple different styles and flavors people are influenced from the early cow style and the cow look and you get the resto custom you know what i mean so there's a lot out there, and I think uh, I think it's definitely worth. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to get something put together because I'd like to definitely document some of that. Because I think the the days of the street racing, the boulevard cruising, you know, the the callouts, the, call outs, the, uh, the 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 focus on taking your bu- taking your Volkswagen, which is on the lowest level of the tier of cars, right? Like the most basic means of transportation and and dialing it in like a cadillac you know what i mean as far as looks and detail and and all that stuff and and it definitely has something to something to say for the pride that people have in in putting the work and effort into the the means of what they can produce you know even if even if it's a small budget you know yeah no absolutely but i i i'm just always blown away by the um all the ingredients, you know, they, they said that the America is the melting pot. Well, the VW scene was the melting pot of different personalities and, and, and customization. And every one of them has value. Look, the, the look that we came up with is no better than the look that the guys had in Orange County. Or the, look, they're all part of the umbrella of the Cal-style look. It's just all of us had our own flavor. Each one of us or each club were, or each individual was an artist in his own way. It had his own movements. So I think that stuff should be recorded. I hope that a director will step up to the plate and, and, and really take a look at the, the screenplay that Robert and I are working on to really put this forward. I think this is a diverse, beautiful universe that is the Volto in culture, and I think that it really needs to be looked at. And, you know, like you said, the, the, the boulevard, the call-out, it was so rich back then. We had these 
kids that would spend all their time in auto shop working on their engines just to make it to Whittier Boulevard that night, you know, to, to, oh, to yeah. show off what you have. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a generational difference of where it was like you put that time and sweat equity into working on something all week long for that 45 minutes or hour and a half that Friday night or Saturday night that you're going to head to the boulevard and just show off your ride. You know what I mean? Or, or just get it put together because you got to make it there for the cruise. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a, yeah. it's something that, that a lot of people in the younger generation, they don't, that if they're not into cars, they don't get it because they don't have that, that perspective of like put in the work now to enjoy it later, you know, or, or actually, you know, see something that stops you in your tracks and you think to yourself, I can't, aff- I can't afford to go buy that, but I'm going to build it and I'm going to, I'm going to do it myself. It might take me some time, but I'll build something just as nice, you know? And it really, it, it, the, the common thread that I've noticed in and throughout the VW scene since I've been doing these podcasts for the past few years is that the people, you know, because at the same time you had the mini truck scene happening and I always equated the mini truck scene to like the mini truck scene was really the credit card, the, the good credit, <laughs> the good, the, the good credit and credit card and mom and dad got money clubs. You know what I mean? Like you could walk into a dealership, your dad would put a down payment on a brand new Toyota. They take it over to the place next door, put wheels, a snug top on it, a stereo system, all that stuff. But those guys were a different level of guys and the VW guys really had to be super resourceful. I mean, they had to they had to figure out how to build their own motors because they couldn't take enough people to get worked on. They had to figure out how to lower cars they didn't make lowering kits for, you know what I mean? Or you couldn't afford a lowering kit, so you had to get creative with sandbags or curbs or whatever you had to do. But I mean, there was just so much of the the culture of a VW enthusiast is just pure resourcefulness. You know what I mean? And like they'll figure out a way no matter what to get the end result of what they're trying to do, which I think is just so unique to our hobby in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pulling torsion bars to lower your car. That I mean, I used to. That's what I did to make extra money when I first started. I would lower them, lower people's cars. Hell, I used to say I could lower a refrigerator. Just get me to it. Right. Right. And, uh, so uh, everything was, but with us, everything had to be slammed to the ground. I mean, at one point, one of my cars was so low that I ran 145s in the back, 135s up front. And when I changed lanes in the freeway, my torsion bar would hit the reflectors and break them off the freeway. Oh yeah, I mean that was that was kind of the way, right? And the, and the, some some of the guys would have. Some some of the guys would have uh, the the old dots laid out in front of their car when they put them on display, showing they were knocking <laughs> knocking dots off the street, which was like the kind of street cred. You know, it was like smoothies with Porsche nipple hubcaps. You know, one thirty fives, or even yeah. if, if you got if you couldn't afford one thirty fives, you go to the junkyard and get temporary spare tires and put. <laughs> I remember when I was coming up, <laughs> I would run temporary tires up front because I couldn't afford the one thirty fives. You know, I could go to the junkyard get the temps for cheap and go to the tire store. Yeah, but the- yeah, they put them on for me, you know? Yeah, back then, the the 135s were, I think only Michelin and Pirelli made them. But it's really interesting you said uh, mini trucks, because a lot of guys that I knew were from night flights. And I don't know if that car, that, uh, car club is still around, but there was a huge mini club scene, mini truck scene back then called night flights. And they had some of the most beautiful trucks I'd ever seen. Yeah, I mean, here in Vegas, it was like it was it was a different world here. It was like I remember it would just be, you know, 
meet up at Carl's Jr. by the by the stratosphere on the downtown side of the strip meet up with a bunch of guy a bunch of people in the, in the VW scene and it was all different kinds of people and we would just cruise Vegas Boulevard which is like no other right back in the day but it was your typical Friday it was your typical Friday night right underage kids having beers you know sneaking out <laughs> hanging out with girls fights breaking out like just it was just it was craziness but it was also just such a different time more I, I want to say more innocence you know what I mean but it was just a it was just a more visceral time, something that you really were engaged in, and you focused all your time towards the weekend, what was going to be happening this weekend, and seeing people, meeting people, and talking to girls, and you know, meeting people from the other side of town or whatever the case was. But but yeah, I remember uh, you know back in the day cruising in Vegas, man. It was just like you're on the strip and you're surrounded by mini trucks and Mustangs and all that stuff, and and it, who could who could bump the bass the most? And I mean, it was just. I'm reminiscent for that time because it was just it, it was just such a such a heyday of of a good of a good time and even if you didn't have a car you ride in the back seat of your buddies you know. Yeah, no, I can hear it in your voice that you're enthusiastic <laughs> and you're remembering this stuff. And believe me, I do the same thing. And look, I, I happen to be in a prison cell right now, and I I always think about you know I, I put my back against the wall of my cell. And I- this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And I put my feet on the wall, and sometimes, you know, I put music on, and I close my eyes, and I and I remember the vibration of my 56. I remember how the throaty sound of the 48s when they open up. And I remember how my tranny would feel when I hit, you know, third close racial third, and I hit fourth gear. All those things are so visceral; they're still there. And it's been such a long time, but you're right. That was a more innocent time where guys or girls just work towards the weekend, which was those few minutes where you were going to be on center stage and you popped out and you had this car that everybody looked at. And there was a sense of pride that came with that. And yeah, I don't think anything replaces that. I don't think anything today has come that replaces that. It's unfortunate now that you really can't cruise like you used to. It's, it's something kids don't do because of all the zoning laws and the, the traffic laws and all these things that are going on. But I can hear it in your voice. It's something that's nostalgic and you remember it like I do. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's one of the reasons why, you know, for the event that I do here in Vegas, I do an event called One Crazy Weekend and we do a huge organized strip cruise and we get, you know, 50, 60 Volkswagens together. This year, I think it'll be pushing over 100 but we'll get them on Vegas Boulevard all together. And, and I'm trying to coordinate a police escort one this year, but it's just one of those things where it's like, I think one of the things for car guys was, and I don't, and I've always been trying to pin it. Like what, at what point was it where something caught your eye and you thought one day I'm going to be that guy driving a car that cool and live that life. Cause it was just, you know, it's just something you see that sticks in your head and you, and you pursue it your whole life. But it's just such a, it's more of a, I always call it curbside, like the curbside superstar. You know what I mean? Like you're just mobbing down the boulevard and everybody's rubbernecking and checking you out. And it's like, there's no, you know, (laughs) and you're a legend in your own mind, you know, just cruising, cruising down the boulevard in, uh, in the display of all your hard work, man. So, well, I, so absolutely, I, I didn't know if you wanted to get into some of the evolution of kind of where things went for you and maybe tell a little bit of that story. Um, since, you know, kind sure. of from, from where you were and, and how it ended up and, and the evolution of all of this, you know, that, that was come to today. So 
it, so in in 1983 you kind of had a you had a, a a setback and got caught up in some things or what's what's the story on that well yeah it's more than just getting caught up i i was in, i ended up being arrested for homicide mm-hmm. and um i was arrested in, in december of 1983 for a crime that happened in april nearly a year prior to that and once i was arrested um I entered a different world. It, it was so surreal. But by 1987, I had been tried and convicted, and I became the youngest person in the state of California ever to be sentenced to death out of Orange County. It was my first felony conviction. It was my first time in jail, and they chose to go after an 18-year-old boy, and they succeeded. Um, and they sent me to San Quentin State Prison, the, the most notorious prison in the nation at that time. It was, a, it was a maximum security prison. And they put me here to really die. And it's, it's kind of heart-wrenching to, to really imagine. And I get really into it in my book, Escape Artist, Memoir of Visionary Arts and Death Row, that was published a few years back. And it's available everywhere. But I really go into what happened to me as a boy. There was a you talked about it. There's a point where you realize you have to put those things behind you. And although you've been in this terrible situation, you've got to do something to survive because the state of California is trying to kill you and the men in the yard who are all in the yard, they're all convicts, they want to kill you as well. Right. So it's very difficult. It, it, it wasn't easy for that boy that I, you know, I remember I, I'm a very young teenager and I'm the youngest guy ever sentenced at Orange County. And, and how old, how old by, were you when you were arrested? I was a teenager. It, it, uh, I was 18 years old when it happened. I had just turned 18. And then uh, when I was arrested, I had just turned 19. Wow, that's incredible. And you look at today's day and age and you see what uh, you see kind of you see things where people there's a first offense, a second chance, all these types of things. And uh, it's it's really it's got to be a little dis- disenchanting, right, to see that and see that maybe. So, so do you feel at the point where, where things for you with your conviction where you made an example of, you feel? You know, I don't, I don't know because obviously a person's life was lost. So you have to first understand that. Sure. But there is a part of me then and today that feels that a lot of people, they went through the same judicial system, have received second chances. And Today, we understand the brain development of children from the age of, in their 20s, are still very immature. And, and I, and I, recently... You have 60 seconds remaining. I told you this before, in 2017, my mm-hmm. conviction, my sentence were thrown out by a federal judge, and I was ordered released. And unfortunately for me, um, the Attorney General appealed it. He partially won, so I'm going to be sentenced to a lesser sentence in the next couple of months. But there is a sense that after 40 years in prison and everything I've done, I think I've, I've proved my worth. Rehabilitation, the shows I do, the talks that I do. Um, and I think it's a pretty important thing because as a lot of my listeners know, I got, I got caught up on an accident in, in Mexico and I spent two months in a Mexican penitentiary. So I don't have near the experience. But what I have the experience of is having your freedom taken away and being around people where a momentary 
a momentary decision is going to negatively impact them for a portion of time that almost might seem a little incredible. And then most importantly, I think what, one of the things that you touched on is, you know, young kids development, you know, the, 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 the frontal cortex development doesn't fully mature until your mid to late twenties, you know, and, and your Correct. reasoning and decision-making and things to that extent in, in some respects, you know, like you said, you know, we had to keep this in perspective that someone's life was lost by this in the same respect. It's like, at what point is there rehabilitation? Do we believe that, that we've come to a point where there's been sufficient remorse and we even understand that even in the gospel, I don't know how, if you're a religious man or not, I am myself, but I know in the gospel there is forgiveness, you know what I mean? And, and, and there's got to be sufficient repentance and things to that extent. So I can only understand, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is to, to kind of try to try to deal with that because I mean, we look at that and I give you an example later on in my life, I changed the way that I lived and I got a little, a, a little more active in my faith and some things like that. And I've had people say to me like, Hey man, you know, you think you're so, you, you think you're so so good now i know the old bill they'll tell me and i think to myself like but that was me when i was a kid man you know what i mean like i was a kid i was different and people grow up and they get older and, and you this know, call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded i i think reflecting yeah, sure. on that makes me think of your situation and i think to myself man you were 18 i did a lot of stupid things man when i was 18 i mean a lot of stupid things no i think you're completely right and, and one of the things i did very early on well, the first night that I arrived at St. Quentin, they threw me in a rat-infested cell. And it was a rat-infested cell. I made a decision. And, and I know that sounds almost like a cliche, but I made a decision that I was not going to allow myself to fall into prison behavior. Right. That, and I didn't know the word rehabilitation, what it meant, because there are no rehabilitative programs on death row. You're supposed to die here. Yeah. But I began... To look into myself, I began to draw and paint. I became, well, as, as you know now, I'm represented by Elder Gallagher of Contemporary Art. I have an exhibit going now through September the 10th called Empty Spaces. And I've been featured in Forbes. I've been featured in Los Angeles Times, the New York Times. And I've had over 45 articles written about what I've done. But one of the things that I realized very early on was accepting responsibility. And in accepting responsibility, even if you didn't do exactly what they said, you got to accept why, how you put yourself in a position for them to do that to you. Right. And that's one of the things that I really accepted. Look, this is my fault. So they judged me, and I understand that. They had the right to do that. But they didn't know who I was. So every day that I've spent behind these bars is to prove those 12 jurors wrong, that they made a mistake. Yes. They had every every right to not dislike me. I wasn't probably a very likable guy. But I, I believe that by showing my worth, this whole experience I've gone through has value. And how I've proven that is by doing the podcast, Death Row Diaries, which break down, breaks down serial killer cases and gives the perspective of a person with experience. I lecture at universities on uh, professional conduct and ethics. But I can speak from a place of a person who has been and was a criminal. Yeah. So I believe that I have a perspective people might listen to. Sure, I joke around like everybody else does. I talk about VWs and, and the stuff I love. But there's always a serious line with me because 
I'm always teetering between life and death because I live on death row. And, I, and it, very soon, I'm going to be sentenced to a lesser sentence and go to a different prison. But my work will never stop, Bill. I'm, I'm going to continue trying to reach out to people and help. I have another podcast that's coming out called Prisonology. It's about rehabilitation. It's about wellness, well-being, and really understanding how we can accept responsibility and better ourselves. All these things are very important to me, and I say it with a lot of passion, almost like I did when I was a kid, I, and I was going to the boulevard that Friday night. Well, I look forward to these episodes of Prisonology and with as much enthusiasm because I know there's somebody out there, there's a man or a kid or a woman, even if they're not in prison but they're in a wheelchair or their their economic circumstances, puts them in some, a, a sort of a prison, and they hear me, and they might think, look, you know what? Individualism, I can do this. I can be better. I can seek education through different means and better myself because no matter what, other people can't define you. Only you define yourself. No, you're you're 100% correct, and I think if you look at today's What's interesting, if you look at today's society and what seems to be unraveling with a lot of the millennial generation, some of the youth, is there's a, a large sense of lack of personal accountability for things. And although to some degree it's, it's, it's not criminally based, but even in society as a whole, if you don't take personal accountability and responsibility for your own actions and you look at the world through the eyes of a victim, it's not a healthy way to live your life. You know, it's definitely not something, it's not a life worth living if you're just a victim all the time. You know what I mean? And even you and your circumstance, there's a lot of guys that are where you're at that that shut down, they can't move forward, they don't do anything positive and they've just given up. But it's like, you see you see your position now as a platform to, to maybe bring things in from a different perspective and share your insight to maybe redirect some other people or give people a different perspective to, to stay focused on something positive out of all things negative, something positive can come out of it, you know? Yeah, you're completely right. And, and, you're, and you're right in, that, in everything you said right there. You know, about 10 years ago, I started a class on the yard. And that's the worst place in the world to get guys who are hardened criminals, who are all youth offenders, to listen to me preach to them about individualism and not to follow prison politics and prison behavior, that they define who they want to be. And even in these very small circumstances, I showed them the accomplishments I've had. And, in my, I'm, and on the road right now, on my yard, we have the highest GED percentage of graduates, and we have more guys on my yard that are in college courses now than ever before in the history of death row. And it's not always, it's just not me. It's me showing them what I was able to accomplish without all these classes. I had to write universities, asking them to give me a shot. And, and I, my accomplishments as an author, an artist, and I tell them, look, I'm no better than you guys. All I want, I have that you don't have is the want and the need for it. Right. And if you need it, and they're doing it. I'm, I'm extremely proud to say that there's a lot of guys here that, look, society's looked upon them badly for probably good reason, but they can still continue teach, and that's what I do. I consider myself an educator. And first and foremost, you know, if I can educate people and understand their own potential, I've done my job. No, man, it's a, listen, it's a, it's a commendable position to take, especially, you know, when, when, when you've been faced with what you've been looking at for the past 40 years, and, uh, 
and, and trying to maintain a positive outlook on it and at least looking to see from where you stand. You know, everybody wants to do great things, but they wait until they're in a great situation to do great things. And there's a saying that says, lift where you stand. And, and one of those things, yes. that, that's what you're doing. You know, right where you're at, you're starting from wherever you are and you're lifting right there, man. And that's, it's hugely commendable, man. And, and it's, 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 uh, it definitely has something to say about your character as to who you are. And, and you know, none of us can change time or, or, or past or things that happen, but we can change who we become and we can change who we want to be. You know, and uh, I think you're yeah, no, I, a good example of that. Well, I appreciate that very much. But, you know, there's a saying, it's very similar to what you said. I always tell guys, there's no time like the present. A lot of guys say, well, next week when I get, there's no time like the present. Yeah. Or better yet, like the famous Nike saying, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So now if people want to check out some of your stuff, how do they... Give me where they go to, to check out your art, to take a look at, uh, to maybe get some of your books or any of that stuff that if they want to kind of dig a little deeper into William Noguera. Sure. Um, you can go to my website, artistwilliamnoguera.com. Mm -hmm. um, you can check out my podcast, Death Row Diaries, at deathrowdiaries.com. We're on Instagram. Um, you can find us on iHeartRadio, on iTunes, where every podcast we found. Uh, Prisonology will be coming shortly. Uh, if you want to look at the show that's happening now at Elder Gallery, it's the Elder Gallery of Contemporary Art in North Carolina. They're on Instagram, as am I. You can find me on Instagram at william.noguera.art. Um, everything that I have, the websites, everything I run by my art agent, the William Noguera Trust. And um, that's it. If nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, just Google William A. Noguera Art and everything pops up. Man, William, I tell you, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really, I'm really glad we got to get down some of this history. And and I may in the future be looking to do a roundtable with a couple of guys from the early days and just kind of talk about the whole scene overall and maybe get some more details of some some specific times and, and, and events that took place back then. I think there's, I think there's a, an opportunity there where we may be able to set it up, especially if I can track down some of the uh, early Bugs Buddies guys and maybe do a little bit of a roundtable of, of maybe a throwback of back in the day, you know? Yeah, that would be great. Actually, Robert and I have been reaching out to them. I mean, I have to call through a collect phone, but I've been reaching out to them. I've spoken to Juan recently. I spoke to Charlie Ramirez. Uh, I've spoken to a number of the guys that are, you know, they're grandfathers now, but they're open <laughs> to the concept of really telling the story. So we'd appreciate the opportunity. I'm sure Robert would like to come on and maybe some of the guys from the German folks. That would be great. Yeah, no, I'd love it, man. So I'll plan on putting that together and we'll, uh, we'll do something for sure in the future. Well, it's been a pleasure, Bill. I appreciate your time and the opportunity to tell the history of the Bugs Buddies as well as the uh, the pachanga bullshit, <laughs> or, or better like they call them, the beater bugs. That's it, man. That's it. Well, William, it's been awesome, man, and I look forward to uh, I look forward to us talking again. And uh, I I commit to you that I will set up I will get a roundtable set up and we'll uh, we'll coordinate it for a specific time because now you and I are in touch. And then I'll coordinate it with Robert and I'll get a couple guys on my line and you and you'll call into me and we'll just this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And we'll just kind of work right. it out from there, man. All right?
That sounds fantastic. Really appreciate your time, Bill. No, and absolutely. And thank you for having an open mind. No, absolutely, man. I look forward to it, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast and really enjoyed getting to the bottom of the origins of the history of the early Cal-style VW look. I assure you there'll be more of these podcasts to come as we track down a lot of the players from the origins of the game. If you enjoyed this podcast, support Let's Talk Dubs by supporting our sponsors and also going to letstalkdubs.com and buying some merch. We've got shirts, hats, and all kinds of cool stuff, sticker packs, and everything else. So check it out. Go to letstalkdubs.com. And don't forget to register for One Crazy Weekend coming up October 7th and 8th here in Las Vegas. Click on the Showtime tab when you go to letstalkdubs.com and you can register there. I appreciate you guys listening. And I wanted to give a shout out to our latest review. Our latest five-star review comes from Badass72Bug. He's in the United States, and he says, Bill T is the man. This is a great podcast. I've been waiting for a VW podcast forever. The Roundtable with George T is my favorite. Keep up the great work. Our next review comes from Weston Woodworking. He says, awesome resource. I listen every week and love all the different guests and topics. Being in Ohio, it's neat to hear what's going on all over the world. Got into the scene a couple years ago, and this show only makes me want more. He gave us a five-star review. So if you guys want a shout-out on the podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read your review on the show. Until next week, guys. Later. Here's a Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. Since we made a VW that's a little roomier in the inside, and in the back, where most cars have their trunks, we have a... Come into your Volkswagen dealer. He'll show you where the motor is. <laughs>